Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment, and suggest future topics and guests. James Cooper is Professor of Law, Associate Dean of Experiential Learning, and Director of International Legal Studies at California Western School of Law. Since 1998, Professor Cooper has directed Proyecto Acceso, a judicial technology transfer project funded by governments, foundations, and international agencies, raising more than $5 million U.S. million for this initiative. He has been a member of the U.S. delegation to the World Intellectual Property Association and has consulted for the U.S. Departments of Justice and State as well as the USPTO. After more than two decades of disruption work in the legal sectors of Latin America, James's work has recently focused on the legal regulation of emerging technologies. A Canadian barrister and solicitor, he co-founded the One World Blockchain Alliance, a network that debuted on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. He's also been an advisor to blockchain companies in North America and Asia. Professor Cooper has also written extensively on fintech and is a columnist for Coindesk, which is featured on Yahoo Finance. James, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Thanks so much for having me, Fred and Jonathan. It's great to be here. James, you know, hearing about your your bio, we obviously can't do justice. Uh, we'd love to hear more, but also I just need to say that you're the kind of person that makes me feel like I've accomplished nothing in my career. So thank you for being the reality check to those of us uh, with inflated egos. We appreciate you being out there. <laughs> I think, thank you. And I, I think the problem might be uh, what, that my mother didn't make you go to law school. You probably went to law school for a different reason. My mother made me go to law school. <laughs> other people go to law school too. But um, listen, we all are a Renaissance people uh, waiting to blossom. The Great Reset is that opportunity. Uh, everyone can learn another language. Everyone can get into uh, a new platform and learn new things, new skill sets. You know, we should. All, this is going to go on for a little bit longer. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of encouraging people to think about where it is they want the world to be a year, two years, and ten years from now, and be part of that, and and take the steps to do that. Anne Frank was asked to sit in a, an attic, in the walls of a house for two years. You know, with seven or eight other people in a pail. Uh, for going to the bathroom, okay, with worry about being, you know, turned over to the Nazis. We're being asked to stay at home. Those of us lucky enough to get checks, and I'm very thankful, feel, feel terribly for others. So this advice is, is is very much fits in the category of middle class problems. But all we're being asked to do is something we're good at: sit at home and watch TV, do your job on your computer. You got Grubhub, you got Uber Eats, you got you know Amazon delivering you things. You've got Netflix for entertainment. 
and Instacart to, to bring in your food. We have nothing to complain about. This is the dangers of liberal democracy uh, and too much free time. Uh, this is an opportunity for all of us to do the next right thing. And I've been spending, trying to spend at least part of my adult years to to encourage other people uh, as my law students or colleagues or uh, people in the blockchain space to embrace this change in a good way. Because this is you know the ultimate disruption. Uh, and it can go really badly or it can go somewhat well. And it's gone badly. Now let's try somewhat well. You know, I often play this mental game with myself, which is if I had the discipline to not watch Netflix or Amazon Prime in the evenings for a whole month, what could I accomplish with those couple hours I spend at night, right? I mean, how, what kind of skill could I develop? But I already, I already try and fill my day with, uh, you know, with some of the good things you've mentioned, right? I'm, I've tried to use this as an opportunity, but I think that uh, knowing myself, I can always push a little bit more, right? To say, well, how can I really use, if I really want to learn guitar, how much am I willing to put into it? Uh, and what am I willing to sacrifice on the entertainment side of my life? Yeah. And being entertained as opposed to being an input into the actual entertainment that you're creating. Exactly. Uh, and, that, and that's, you know, being, being an author, being a, in, in all senses of intellectual property. You know, my, my journey has been about intellectual property. I started off as a teenage pirate. I, I was uh, artistic as a kid and in my basement with my friend Adam and then my brother a couple of times, we made headbands, we silk screened all this stuff. And we, you know, we look at the Living Newton-John album and we trace it and put it into a silk screen and then run 200, 300 headbands and glue the things together with those, uh, you know, glue that you use with an iron. And, you know, and then go out after a concert because people will buy anything. We did for Roxy Music, for Queen. We got busted at The Who, one of their last concerts. <laughs> but I come to this as first a pirate in the understanding of what is the gray economy. I come to all of this stuff I do as a, as a legal professional because um, we have to be true to ourselves, one hopes. And no matter how I try to be Michael Corleone, I always I've ended up as, as Jerry Lewis. I was a pirate. So fast forward to... 2014, and I'm sitting in the North Korea seat because they weren't there, or in the Ukraine seat at the UN General Assembly in the the alternative one in Geneva, where the World Intellectual Property Organization they don't have their own assembly hall. They use the other UN General Assembly hall in Geneva for their annual meetings and for their big convention signings and so forth and huge conferences. So I was there for the advisory committee on enforcement because I've been doing some law enforcement work, and I thought. You know, what led me here? I'm now talking about protecting intellectual property. I'm now trying to promote alternatives to litigation over intellectual property, trying to create micro programs so that people can get IP who are indigenous people who wouldn't be part of the global trade regime and like a multinational corporation like Bertelsmann or, or Time Warner Spectrum or who, whatever they're called now or any of those other uh, mega media companies. So there's a journey here. And, and I think you, it's not always linear, uh, but for all of us. In all, in all the things we do. So let me back up for a second, because I'm curious how uh, you wound up from Toronto to San Diego. And of course, before you answer that, can you, can you answer for me, please? I've been on the phone lately with a lot of Canadians. Are Canadians all polite? Are there rude Canadians out there that I just haven't met yet? For sure. Okay, good. All right. I have hope, I have hope for the world then. I've heard it called a fake nice. I think it's nice, but you know, I could be part of, you know, better fake Nice than fake news, I always say. We live in a world uh, where Canadians are deemed, quote, nice, and end quote. Um, I'll tell you one thing about them. They spell color with a U. <laughs> so, oh, and there's like a, a middle part to this piece. You just don't go from being a pirate to trying to protect the, you know, the modern liberal democracy world in the post-industrial knowledge-based economy to continue to 
tickle its snout at the food trough of intellectual property regimes. It's it's more than that. It's not just doing the bidding of Microsoft or uh, Madonna or Steven Spielberg so they can get bigger swimming pools. It's also about trying to bring indigenous people in. But there's a, a halfway point, and there are these moral rights that exist, the, a right of authorship, like I was talking about earlier, because I think every human being, especially in, the, in this digital age, we, we're constantly creating stuff. That's what social media is. And, you know, except that, you know, most of the time the product is ourselves. It's like self-mercantilism. And other companies are harvesting said free information, uh, which is the conversation everybody suddenly clicked on to now. Like, oh, why am I getting those ads? All that stuff. Suddenly people are like, oh, digital sovereignty, it matters. Not that much, but it matters. There was a middle part where when I got out of law school, I didn't want to be a lawyer. And I worked at uh, Baker McKenzie at the start of my career. And I took some time off and I'd always done photography. And so I ended up being a freelancer and doing a lot of work for Marie Claire, the women's French magazine uh, that, uh, out of Reed Elsevier, actually. Uh, but uh, you have to say Marie Claire like that. And I did the photography uh, for them, a reportage. And sometimes I was lucky I get like Marie Claire UK to agree to do it and pay for the expenses. Then we go on a story to Brazil or to Nebraska, actually, for a story. And I had my pictures published in the UK version. And then I got a call from an Italian agent and said, did you give your permission from the Mary Claire story? In this case, it was about a young 14-year-old who was not permitted to get an abortion. Did that story that played in Mary Claire and the entire town of Blair, Nebraska, did like this human chain around her. Most of the work I did was like, it was always a legal angle to it. It's police brutality or piracy. My artwork is informed by the kind of content I've learned over the years. But uh, this Italian agent said to me, did you publish your piece and give permission to Mary Claire to publish it? Or what were your, I said, oh no, always for just first publication in the English language rights. And after that, uh, I sell the rights to publish it. And there's 22 other uh, magazines that sometimes will bid on it. And it's, you know, $500. We sued Mary Claire because they uh, published my photos in a magazine. Mary Claire didn't uh, even know about this. The El Corriere della Sera from uh, Northern Italy, uh, which was a good paper. Uh, published it and then put of Mary Claire, not even my name. So I didn't even have the right of paternity, just even being said that I took the photos, but never mind the fact they didn't pay. So we sued them for 8 million lira. At the time, it was like $8. It was, it was 8,000 Canadian at the time, 6,000 US. Um, and we settled. I'm sure my gag order is over, but we settled for like 4,000. Graziella, my new best friend, got to keep $1,000 and I got 3,000 and walked away like, hey, they, they paid 500. Cool. But there was another piece to this that I didn't mention. And my last year of law school, I went to law school in Italy. So, you know, hell hath no fury like a former pirate turned photographer having his intellectual property rights uh, violated, spurned. Hell hath no fury like that person spurned. And we got three large. Pretty exciting. James, as I listen to, to this story and this evolution in your IP journey, I can't help but find something of a parallel to what's happened with China and intellectual property rights. Because if you go back 20, 25 years, the big story was, of course, rampant counterfeiting. And it was very difficult for foreign companies to protect their, their rights, in part because the, the system wasn't set up. There might have been some deliberate element to it, but it was also just the, the lack of an infrastructure to, to combat counterfeiting. However, as, as Chinese companies started to develop their own intellectual property, then I think that's really when you start seeing an evolution in the Chinese legal system when it comes to, to IP, because even though they might still have mixed feelings about protecting the intellectual property rights of foreign businesses, 
certainly when it came to protecting the intellectual property rights of their own companies, especially powerful companies that might find themselves dealing with with competitors, potentially in other countries, right, where where now China has a, an interest in making sure that their creations are, are protected. That sort of led to, to a shift. So I I can't help but notice there's there's a little bit of a parallel there, right? When when it's you, you know, when it's your creation that's that's at stake, right? Then that that changes everything. That's great. I'd never thought about that, and that's a really great parallel. Because in essence, my journey—that's a great way to, to put it. I, you know, I, in a way, going from copier to entrepreneur and IP person representing, dealing with the international treaties and trying to encourage countries to protect intellectual property, i.e., American or Western intellectual property. You raise the ultimate issue, which is. China goes from being a copier nation to, you know, the main protagonist in IP. And that's not by accident. That's part of Made in China 2025 policy, where they want to be the leaders on AI or 5G uh, or robotics or genomics or semiconductor, all that, all the major uh, industry 4.0, all that stuff, blockchain, that, those strategic um investments, which are, by the way, are no different than us giving Boeing export subsidies, uh, or uh, or giving a farm bill to Iowa farmers for ethanol of artificially. This is just state subsidies. It's state-owned enterprise in a different way that we always criticize China about. Like, oh, they're picking winners and losers. Like we don't. Like the Europeans don't with the common agricultural policy. It's again, it's about your snout at the food trough. Um, so China's journey, not unlike mine, as you noted, was from a copier to an inventor. And all this, and sure, and IP suddenly matters. In fact, according to the World Intellectual Property Organization, and this is their annual report in 2013, looking at 2012, that's the year that uh, that China, the People's Republic, started um, filing more patents than anywhere, any other country in the world. And now it's more than Japan and the EU combined. Now there's a, um, a caveat to that. 90% of these of these uh, uh, patents are, are vacated after a year because some of them, a lot of them are junk. It's the ones that aren't. It's the ones. It's it's the other IP that um, you know that that uh, you know number that that uh, digital wallet or online trading platforms or WeChat or whatever. It's that stuff that's the and the market dominant, not just the industry dominant because but it, it it's market and industry dominant. These are the um, the the companies that are coming out of People's Republic of China where they've got teams and teams and teams of engineers working on this stuff. We do too. We just don't have the same kind of strategy because we live in a federalized, non-command, non-market authoritarian economy uh, with democracy and all the slowness that that, you know, that, that brings uh, because you know, you have to, there's a lot of compliance. We don't have as much compliance when it's just about naked capitalism. doesn't matter who the owners are. They could be the CCP. Uh, they can be a limited liability company or they can be a Hong Kong trust. It doesn't matter. It's still extracting value. Um, and so – China is now in that position where it's saying, okay, we, we care about IP. That We're in the f- post-smokestack economy. We're not just about building stupid stuff that we send to people in, at, at Walmart, you know, the plastic things we all need, uh, the low skill, the extrusion, it's the, you know, the ugly uh, uh, pollution emitting, uh, carbon uh, emitting. Now it's all the other stuff with it, the thought economy. And that includes, by the way, service economy, stuff like insurance, you think of the power of Jack Ma, the anti-shirts of all these other uh, – and, and the power using blockchain over that and, how, and DeFi, decentralized uh, finance. And you add to that a global trade 
uh, agenda that's called One Belt, One Road, or now Belt and Road Initiative from President Xi from uh, September 2013 when he went to Kazakhstan and announced it, the road one, the land one. Then he did the maritime one a couple months later at the Indonesian uh, parliament. Um, This is hardcore. This is – and there's like more than 70 countries now. Now, none of these these framework agreements actually are legally valid. They're not binding. Uh, But it's these secondary investment agreements where trillions of dollars have been doled out and assets and extraction concessions have been extracted and concluded and secured so that every part of the the supply chain becomes uh, monopolistic in some sense uh, or it's our tech and their tech or our internet and their internet. Their WeChat, not here. <laughs> their, their TikTok, eventually not here. You know, Huawei, all that stuff. Entities list for commerce. But there's different policy tools we use. But uh, there's definitely a competition going on. There's definitely been a transformation which has fostered that competition. Um, and like how we rebuilt Germany and Japan after World War II, we funded this. So, James, let's pivot over to Latin America. I'm very curious to hear more about Proyecto Acceso. Uh, I'm, I'm one of those people who took your advice and I've been studying Spanish bit by bit every day. And so I didn't have to Google translate it, but I did just to make sure I knew, I knew what I was talking about. Um, I mean, it, it's project access or the access project, right? So, um, you know, it has something to do with IP rights. I'd love to hear exactly what the nuts and bolts of that are. Thank you um, for asking, Jonathan. Proyecto Acceso, it's A-C-C-E-S-O, is actually, it means access, but it also is an acronym for Abogados Creativos Colaborando para Encontrar Soluciones Optimas, uh, which in Yiddish means creative lawyers collaborating to find optimal solutions. Acceso, Abogados Creativos Colaborando para Encontrar Soluciones Optimas in Spanish, and it's a sigla, it's an acronym. Because we were just a a group of lawyers, first in Chile, and uh, a Mexican, myself a Canadian, and uh, an American law school, and we started to help Chile move from the inquisitorial to the adversarial system. There are certain legal technologies that North America and the Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-American notion, not necessarily common law, but the adversarial system, and then the way law is taught through case law and through clinics and teaching soft skills, all that stuff had to be imported, but not just imported into Latin America, but developed because there was also money at the same time, you know, free and fair elections for the first time in a long time, something we should always have as well. But, uh, you know, free and fair elections is not a liberal democracy make. So we worked with state department and justice and the OAS, the organization of American States and, a bunch of uh, other stakeholders, the British government, the German, we did a lot of work with GTZ, which is now called GIZ, which is the German Government Technical Cooperation Agency, a private corporation funded by the government, but does the work of USAID, but far better. All local government's critical, so because a lot of these things have to be ha- um, homegrown. They can't, you know, you can't impose it. You don't, the Spanish imposed uh, courtesy of the French, uh, you know, the Napoleonic Code and all the other stuff that they got as part of the colonial legacy. And this is left over and put in with that, you know, a whole indigenous uh, rights, indigenous centric agenda of trying to include people that, by the way, use oral orality and oralidad storytelling as part of their culture. That's what the common law and the, the, rather the, the way that we do our, our criminal product, we tell a story. This, even in civilized, these are all storytelling techniques. And it's it's whether you, you know, you buy into the, the story and, and, and award damages in the case of civil or tort or, or put someone in jail. It's a story. But those indigenous groups also have, believe it or not, they actually were doing adjudication of disputes before Columbus got here. I know this comes as a huge shocker to a lot of people that we didn't discover the Americas. They already knew, including their own version of jurists 
they already knew they were there. So this notion of self-determination. So I, um, that sort of idea has informed our work for uh, over 20 years. And we've raised millions of dollars doing this and done amazing work. It, ironically, it ended me up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal in 2008, which followed with a request by Donald Trump Productions, True Story, shortest meeting in Hollywood, a, um, a request to turn the work that we were doing into a reality show. So um, this journey, again, it's about the journey, but um, I didn't plan into this, but having gone to law school in Italy and understanding the civil law system and having worked at Baker McKenzie at the end of the Cold War and helping you know pave the rainforest to build the Rainforest Cafe, that there's a certain a set of values of neoliberalism that if you use it in an NGO educational way, you can do really well and do really good. And that's what we attempted to do over the years. Um, and helping 15 different countries uh, move their judicial systems from the inquisitorial system, you know, based on the Spanish Inquisition, not exactly the highlight or the hallmark of modernization or the Enlightenment. And we transitioned it to the adversarial system with all the problems uh, that come with it, but with a certain panoply of rights like due process, the right to hear the, you know, the evidence, uh, the right to a public defender, uh, the right not to be arbitrarily detained, those sorts of things. Um, so we are, after 20 odd years uh, of doing this, uh, it, it still exists, but in the form of an online LLM, uh, in Spanish through our law school, uh, which brings in over a hundred students a year. And I'm really proud of that because it's sustainable now and not grant driven. Uh, but the skill sets in oral argument, but also sec, you know, not just oral trials and case law and teaching, you know, legal education, uh, modules, uh, and developing curricula with with Ameri with the Latin American law schools, but as the world moved towards this more enlightenment adversarial system and a series of judicial processes away from opaque closed trials to oral trials, then it went to civil law, and then issues of of, of intellectual property law, uh, because you know global. How do you once you have a rule of law, which is good for everybody, corporations, women's groups, student groups, human rights activists, indigenous, who doesn't like the rule of law? You can have rule of law and like traditional healing circles and other stuff for indigenous. But so rule of law is good. I don't think I've never had anybody say no. Yes, it's based on patriarchy and all. You know, there are capitalist overtones to it and all that. Put that argument aside. At least we can have the conversation that we can agree on. The rule of law is a good thing. If you buy into that, then there's a series of next disruptive steps that one can take. And I've been working outside of Excesso in that in the law and technology spaces uh, to try to find ways to apply what I learned there in this new area. And it's, and it's been that itself has been an amazing trip, um, which I'd love to tell you about uh, the blockchain work. I do have to inject one thing. Uh, your, your talk of the Spanish inquisition, the legacy there reminded me of, of something I just found when I was studying Chinese the other day. Uh, I found a word in Chinese for uh, the punishment of cutting off someone's toes or their feet as punishment, right? I was like, oh, it's a very common part of a very common character. And and I wouldn't have known it unless I kind of dug into it. And so uh, it, it's kind of shocked me, although I've found that from time to time in, in my Chinese studies. So it doesn't really shock me. But it, it's um, it's just amazing how, uh, especially in a language like Chinese, where the <laughs> where the culture, there's so much culture embedded in the language, right? Other other languages, it's harder to find it, but Chinese, it's often right there uh, in front of your face. Just an interesting tidbit I found. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. And it's kind of a systemization of brutality. Yeah. Like waterboarding, which was not invented by, uh, in, you know, after 9-11, it goes to the Spanish Inquisition. 
that was extra hard, actually. Difficult was was doing rule of law work during the Bush administration where we were becoming more and more inquisitorial through FISA and all this other and Guantanamo rendition, all that stuff. Uh, we were looking in, in the techniques. We were looking more like the inquisitorial system here in the West than uh, than Latin America was. This idea of moving away from confessions and using real evidence and changing the burden of proof and creating um, a reasonable doubt and, 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 and new standards uh, and and just a very foundational notion of um, instead of uh, the defendant being an object of an investigation like it was in the civil law tradition to to the subject with human rights, a broad panoply of civil and political rights, which, by the way, internationally, Chile, Bolivia, they all signed on to the ICCPR, the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights from 1966, which went into force. And so they just didn't, you know, domestically legislate or make it. And any legal system that is going to be worth its salt has to have norms, rules, and institutions to enforce those norms and rules. Norms, rules, and institutions. Without effective enforcement and legal system isn't really working. So in work in trying to move to another era of that, I started looking, I was really interested in blockchain and other technologies and how one can infuse, like in the Chinese language you were saying, that that icon or that the letter that is uh, you know, discussing corporal punishment. Uh, in a very brutal way, but effective. You know, the inquisitorial system was super effective in terms of um, prosecution rate. The question is, how do you infuse ethics and rules and standards and and certain norms? What are foundational norms? Like, you don't cut people's hands off for stealing. Can we have that as a an understanding? Or we don't, you know, engage in uh, FGM cutting, or we don't engage in honor killings, or we don't engage uh, in sweeping people off the street and putting them into black sites, or we don't. There, there are so where's the floor? Where, you know, and then how do you build that discussion out of out of that without engaging in moral relativism? Now you put all that kind of stuff that you know something about. We know something about liberal democracy in fifty years after the Cold War, which we won. I think I don't know. Winning means Kazaki nuclear scientists driving cabs in New York, but I guess that's a win. So what is the the dividend? Well, the dividend is all this tech making our life easier and easier. This peace dividend that we're supposed to get. Because we're at the end of history is now we just move to better and better ways to buy things. So um, – and then digitization. They came as a result of the reset. So I'm just really interested. How do you infuse that, that – those ideas, the overlay of what human rights, what order, what sequence? Do you develop the tech and then you do the ethics and then the, the uh, deal with implicit bias? Or do you build in your team people that know about implicit bias and want to prevent it and build that into the code? What's the right – what's the right order? What's the right sequence? And that's what I've been thinking a lot about writing a bit and, and helping with some blockchain companies uh, a bit um, because you know regulators, this is getting so ahead of regulators and it's so inherently antithetical to regulation, blockchain and, and I, it, it's going to change our jobs as lawyers, smart contracts, AI used in discovery. And we've not, you know, our law schools are still, you know, catching up to the fax machine. So that's been, been been keeping me up a little bit at night as an administrator and, and, and trying to find figure out how do you pivot from this kind of – we teach online, we practice online. How do you change legal education to reflect those forced pivots? It would have taken us a lot longer had you know, we not had three weeks or a week to shut down and move to online classes, whatever. You know, it was literally a week we were suddenly online. That was amazing. Not in a good way that it had to happen but because uh, it would have taken us years culturally, institutionally, to do those things. Now we're in that kind of hyper mode. How does law, what role does law play now? So that, that's what I've been, been thinking about. Well, James, I'd like to ask you about, about this, this shift 
uh, in in your work. And and I'd like to mention that when we first got in touch, it it, it was basically because we were both working in in the IP field. I remember you were supposed to give a, a presentation in in Hong Kong, and you were unable to to make it back in the day when this was not that common, you, you called in through, through Skype. I mean, nowadays that's, you know, normal, but of course, back then it was, you know, like, Oh, that's, that's interesting. Somebody in, in North America is, is, is communicating with us over, over the internet, but certainly, and I've noticed, right. As I, as I follow your, your work and your publications, there, there's been that, that, that shift, uh, toward, uh, emerging technologies. And, and of course at, at one level, it's, it's, it's self-explanatory. I mean, it's something that's with us. It's something that's of interest. Um, but I wonder if there were specific triggers for for that shift, right? Whether there were moments where you read something or, or heard something or, or simply had a particular realization that this was that this was important. Thanks for that question. There are like lots of little moments where all that came together. The part of the shift. Away from, for me, uh, you know, after 20 years of working in Latin America, our work is never done. Democracy and, and, and rule of law work, it's like it's constantly tinkering to make things better. And it's what lawfare, using law to make social change, to to pivot to a new kind of system or rights, or but do it legally without violence. That's what, what the rule of law is about. It's moving in increments, but sometimes there's some huge sweeps that happen when stuff becomes a law to land through the Supreme Court or a new piece of legislation uh, that gets passed and signed into law and uh, enforced. Over time, I didn't participate in web or internet 1.0 or 2.0. I really, I, 1.0, yeah, I was, I was an early adopter. I was early using Zoom, been early doing a couple of things, but 12 is still flashing on my VCR at home metaphorically, and I never learned how to program the darn thing. I remember I gave a talk about regulation and infusing human rights into blockchain work, and or how it could be used for, for human rights work. A couple of kids from um, the People's Republic of China on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum came over to me at the Hard Rock Hotel where we had this three-day one-world blockchain. These kids were like half my age. So one of them was half my age. So the two of them together were, were my age. And I always like saying, you know, my boss from China was half my age. This kid walked over and said, hey, I really like what you're talking about. Would you like to be CEO of our blockchain company out of Beijing? And and then I thought, you know, I missed out on this whole, like their whole, I didn't have a LinkedIn page. They kept saying, is this you? Is this you? And I say, no, 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 I don't have LinkedIn. I have a job. He said, no, no, that's not what it's for. Uh, and so I went from like no uh, online presence, aside from the law school website and some pre access stuff, and, you know, a few things uh, in the news to WeChat and Line and WhatsApp and, I, you know, stickers and and, and, you know, you talk about, Jonathan said, you know, all the television he's watching, if he just applied it to a better end, and maybe, and, and there's nothing, you know, you got to de- de- you know, detox at the end of the day. But um, I, 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 I thought of all the time, the time I used on that. I used to be really upset with myself when I got hooked on um, Jersey Shore and I watched, I think, all six or seven years. And, you know, I was all, I knew everything about Snooki and Polly and, 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 and the situation. And I thought... And I added up the hours and it's like, I could have finished my PhD thesis by then with all of that time. That was just not, there was not good time. Uh, that, that, that was not a good use of time. But when these kids came over to me and said, you know, I could jumpstart, I could move from 12 on the VCR to doing blockchain. I thought, okay, that I, I can, I can make this work because it's disruptive technology. It was part of the linear pattern of one, my career and of how life was moving. That we were, you know, and things are, you know, the exponential growth on all things, on tech, on innovation rollout, on the next new thing. It's just so much more sped up 
then for us, you know, moving from Australopithecus man to, to Homo erectus or, and, you know, with a little bit of a Homo sapien in, in, you know, in all of that, it's uh, that linear, I could jumpstart. And I, and I like the idea of jumpstarting. That's what the work we do in Latin America, you, you know, moving people that don't even have rule of law where they are and saying, we're going from the inquisitor to the average. So they didn't even know about it. It's the ultimate in neoliberalism. It's called self-help. They were doing it themselves through indigenous work, which I studied for um, uh, a couple of years and, and spent some time working in the in Bolivia and with the government of Bolivia on infusing those ideas into their uh, 411 uh, chapter uh, constitution from 2009. Hey, James, before we started recording, uh, we had talked briefly about Clubhouse. Uh, it's been a hot thing the last uh, you know six weeks or so since it launched. Um, what do you think about it? What, what, uh, what's your take? I mean, I, I have my thoughts as well, but, uh, I'm here every week and we only have you here today. So please tell us, uh, kind of what, what's your hot take on it? Uh, what's, you know, it's been in the news quite a bit, especially regarding China too, but I mean, feel free to, to answer it any way you want to. Do you think it's a good idea? Is it, is it new? It feels uh, like a, a radio show that everyone gets to dictate who, who can actually speak. Right. So that, that's my, that's my overview, but, but please uh, give us your thoughts. Thanks for asking, Jonathan. I, I'm new to it, but we're all new to it. <laughs> um, I didn't know about it a month ago, and then I just kept hearing about it from different people uh, through chats and through um, – uh, we did a conference on Zoom, and some guy in Taiwan I know wrote me and said, you should do your thing on, on, on Clubhouse. I was like, what is Clubhouse? And it's like, no, we're going to have PowerPoints. We're going to have we – can't, we can't do that. Uh, we've already put out the, the Zoom link. But I, um, I decided to get on because the people I knew through Digital Davos and um, – called Undavos, an underground Davos group of, 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 of really hep cats of journalists and, and technologists and cryptographers and regulators. They all get together every year. Now they're on, online through, through Telegram. Um, so I got on and they set up their own chats. I've um, People I haven't – I guess it attacks your – I don't allow these things hopefully to get to my contact list. Uh, but I must be my email, my information must be on somebody else's contact list because I got uh, some invites. Somebody vouched for me. It felt like the mafia right at the beginning because I had to have somebody vouch for me. But to get the invitations, you have to give away your your contact list, and I'm not giving that thing out. So short answer is um, I've attempted a couple of I've attended a couple of calls. I've been really interested in the groups. I'm looking at who's in the groups and how they describe themselves. Um, I, I see it. I don't know if it's a serious. Uh, it's serious because people are using it. Um, and some uh, group of doctors I've been working with on a project, uh, we might host something on it. But, um, you know, it could be the next big thing. And then that's great. And then there'll be something else next week and the week after. And I'm, uh, I like to have something for a little bit before they change my OS system and it all looks different. You know, it's a, there's a difference for somebody, for a legal professional who's mid-50s or their mid-50s. Um, you know, what I need, I, I – Again, that's why I missed uh, Facebook uh, the first time around. And uh, nobody needs to know what I ate for lunch or who I'm seeing. There's a reason you don't know what I'm doing today is because I don't want you to know. <laughs> so uh, it's uh, nobody needs that level of granularity and scrutiny in their life or to give up that information to a for-profit corporation that harvests and uh, commercializes that information. That just seems wrong. So I'd like to turn now to your academic experience. You've taught all over the world. You're, you're in San Diego now, but you've had, you've had stints teaching in Scotland, Canada, Macau, Germany, um, et, et cetera. So I, I guess perhaps a starting point to discuss this topic is the fact that 
Well, I'm sure there's a lot of lawyers out there that think about a career in academia, perhaps as adjuncts, maybe not necessarily making the, the jump to being full, full professors, but probably something that, that is of interest to some of our listeners. So I'd like to, to hear your perspectives generally on, on what it's like to, to teach, on how that shift perhaps would, would work for, for people who have been working at, at, at firms or at a, at a government department and might perhaps uh, idealize a little bit that, what, what that shift would entail. And while we're, while we're on the subject generally, you talked earlier about the, the Great Reset. So how has that impacted you and your students? I hear a lot about what what impact the pandemic has had on the educational setting. Both of my parents are are professors, so I know that they're they've struggled with that, continue to do so. I haven't experienced it myself. For me personally, the the experience has been rather positive for most of what has shifted in my life towards Zoom and other platforms. By and large, the experience has been has been a good one, right? There's been a lot of pluses that have come with it, but I know that it's very different when you're in that academic setting where the audience is not as disciplined or 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 as experienced even when it comes to receiving instruction. So I'd love to I'd love to hear about that. And like I said, would love to hear your thoughts generally on teaching and, and what that means for a lawyer in particular. That's a really good question, Fred, because lawyers and legal educators are going through the same thing. We're all being forced to pivot online. Um, it just uh, so it's 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 a unique experience. To you have to, in a way, invent while you uh, reinvent the teaching while you're reinventing the the profession. And no one knows, you know, when everyone's going to be back and, and so forth, and all the as as the vaccine gets rolled out. So, uh, short answer is it's been very um, it's been fluid. Uh, from a teaching perspective, uh, COVID, for me personally, and I think for our institution, I was very impressed with my colleagues' ability to pivot. Um, I've been teaching online since 2003 using uh, iChat, the precursor of FaceTime. I did my first one in Bolivia using iChat and, and, and Wi-Fi, and it was amazing, or maybe even the Ethernet connection, but it was an, uh, an amazing experience. And I taught in Germany uh, once in person in 2014, the year before I'd gotten ill, and I couldn't do it in, uh, in 2013 and spent, you know, you know, five, uh, 10 lectures for two hours each over a, a week and a half period, two weeks. It was an amazing experience. And I, and I keep in touch with some of those people. I've never met them. I never met them in person. Uh, so I, I, I guess I was acclimatized early to this. Our online LLM uh, in Spanish in oral advocacy with Latin America for Latin American lawyers, which gets over 100 students a year. We pioneered that in 2014, first year online using Zoom. So um, I feel comfortable with this medium. Now, doing it, uh, you know, changing last year without having thought through, because we had to do it in the last couple of weeks of, of, of law school in 2020, that was hard for a lot of people because it was just so, so drastic. But now I've set up my, my office. I, you know, I'm noting you've got the, the, the professional microphone. I've been thinking, like, I should just get some lights because I treat it like a TV show, like a talk show or a radio show. But I do it where I have two turntables uh, from uh, previous experiences in, in music, and I, I'll put it with, with monitors, and I'll spin old 80s stuff that's related to the, whatever lecture we're going to be doing. So I played uh, the band Japan um, uh, Visions of China yesterday when I was talking about the uh, Belt and Road Initiative. I probably should have played Chinese music, but this was David Sylvian and when the artistry started to embrace uh, Chinese culture. And that's really the theme uh, of yesterday's lecture. But I'm trying to curate 
and spend more time thinking about images, a little bit of videos, uh, staying with the same picture. Uh, you know, people use PowerPoint and that's cool or Keynote or, or Prezi. And I think that's all helpful. Um, sometimes I just show them what's on my screen, what I'm you know show, thinking about and, and I'll find seven, eight things that I'll use and close down everything else so that they can get to it. And then I stay after class. Office hours are somewhere between never and always. You know, I'm always available. But, you know, being always available, other people are going to want to talk to you too. Uh, so I'm perennially 10 minutes late. But I'll, I'll see lots of people in a day. And it's not the same as what it was before. It can be equally soulful. Uh, I will give you that. You can still uh, get your message across in a kind and supportive way. And sometimes uh, speak truth uh, at the same time without being stinging. Uh, the backhanded compliments we were talking about earlier or um, false praise, be damned. Not that stuff that we were talking about pre-show. But you could show your concern. There's still ways to do that and empathy across the digital world. Uh, yeah, I miss everyone. I, I, I'm a very physical teacher. I, I use it as theater. I do mime. I, you know, we do reenactments and tort law of cases of the facts of a case. You know, there's a lot of participation or a walk between uh, the, the making sure they're not playing solitaire. But I walk between the students and yell out things like I got my rights, you know, stuff like that. Or I did a whole Jack and Diane thing when we were doing one of these cases. And it was very, very Jack and Diane, uh, John Cougar Mellencamp. There's a lot of 80s. There's a lot of 12 flashing. But I miss that part, the visceral part, of the, the, the tactile, the teaching, the touching of a classroom, a, a podium. That part, I have to admit, is is tough. But I think you're right in the sense of uh, lawyers because you might not see – because if you're doing a drafting work, you might not see clients. There will be days – you might have a client tie day where you have to put on your tie and do, a client, do client meetings. And maybe that's the case now. We all have Zoom tops. Um, that's a thing. But again – I think there's something still that you know that's not quite normal about all of this, but we'll have to get used to it because we're in it for a little bit longer. James, it's been a delight to have you with us on the podcast today, and we always like to end with uh, asking our guests for recommendations, something that you've read, something you've seen, something you've listened to lately uh, that would be interesting, or it could be something from uh, you know from your your always your go to bag of tricks, right? I have some some books that I always listen to or read. Uh, you know, kind of on a recurring basis. So what recommendations do you have for us today? I've been reading some Roberto Bolaños, a Chilean author who passed away in the 90s, who's brilliant. Uh, Savage Detectives, Night on Earth, One Night on Earth. Um, uh, there's collections of short stories, uh, but he's, he's, he's and you got to have some time for it. I haven't finished it, but it's been really good. Um, and I've been uh, binge watching with my family. I say binge watch, you watch one or two a night, one, usually one, the crown. Um, and I, that's been fun, uh, with my 11 year old, um, and trying to, uh, you know, again, Canadian spelling color with a U just understanding the British. And, uh, I think that's a, that's a really good exercise. Uh, and it's it just so beautifully shot and so beautifully, uh, written and acted. Um, and, uh, we'll do, uh, we have a night we call, um, books and snacks where instead of watching TV, we'll sit around and everybody picks a book in our family and we just sit and we eat grapes and cheese or whatever and um or almonds and we'll we'll read a book of three three of us or four of us uh, on a on a couch so um it's uh that's a a fun ritual sounds great i I should do that with my kids as well (laughs) i should tell you i've rediscovered some amazing music from the 80s just going through my entire my and my my grandparents collection I've gone through all their records, some Frank Sinatra and Connie Francis and 
Italian strings. You know, there's some old analog stuff that I also like to get my kid in to do that. He plays electric guitar. I heard you said you were learning guitar. Uh, and I play drums. So we've been redoing a lot of New Order songs as sort of uh, uh, um, non-new wave, more rock. One of my favorite 80s bands. Absolutely. Fred, what about you? What do you have for us today? Well, first of all, I'd, I'd just like to point out that um, The Crown has now entered the privileged space of being a, a double recommendation on the on the podcast. It was actually my recommendation during our last recording. I completely agree. Uh, great window into into the UK, of course, uh, and and the cinematography is 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 fantastic. Most of the acting is also pretty good, although there are a couple of of casting choices that I uh, I take issue with. So let me reendorse the Crown as a as a recommendation. In terms of of my own recommendations, as readers of the Economist will know, there's a regular column on China called uh, Chaguan, and I think this is their most recent column dated February 20th edition. So it's out online, not, not, not yet out in print. The title of the, of the most recent installment is China Faces Fateful Choices, especially involving Taiwan. It's a sobering read, even for someone like me who, who follows China and Taiwan issues closely. I think it's one of the most succinct, let's say, explanations of, of why this is a problem. I think there, there's, you can, you can definitely find some fascinating conversations taking place out there about Taiwan and and there's all kinds of speculation as to what could happen and you know you have to look at Chinese policy making and of course possible US responses but I think this this column really really narrowed it down and very starkly explains why this is a problem and why wishing it away is is not a good approach and um I'd like to take advantage of this opportunity I don't really know where else to do it <laughs> within the uh within the um the podcast maybe we'll have to to come up with a better solution but I'd like to send greetings to Simon Eagleman one of our loyal listeners he uh he reached out with some guest recommendations and we we do we do appreciate those so for all of you out there, please, please reach out to us. Uh, we love to hear from you. So Jonathan, what about you? What are your recommendations for this week? I recently got onto CSIS's mailing list. CSIS is the DC-based think tank uh, called the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And I learned about them when I was in law school in DC. Um, they're very focused on um, kind of promoting really deep thoughts around national security uh, and that kind of global security, right? And uh, their like their website says they they're trying to influence key decision makers uh, and working toward a vision of a safer and more prosperous world. So economics always comes into play as well as we're talking about uh, kind of global security in a in a broad sense. So I don't have any specific recommendations from them yet. I recommend getting on their mailing list, like I am, because I get hit two or three times a day, I think, in my email with programs, with um, policy papers that have been put out. And the content is exceptionally uh, good. And uh, I, I wish I had time to read everything, but I encourage you to get on the mailing list and see what's there. If you're, uh, I mean, I assume that our listeners enjoy international things as much as we do. And that's um, certainly something that we all we all coalesce around here. So I recommend that, csis.org. Um, and I'll probably provide some more detailed recommendations as I, as I dig deeper into, into what they have available. And with that, James, we want to thank you again for being with us. It's, uh, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, we hope you'll join us again at some point in the future. Look forward to it. Thank you both for, uh, for hosting me, and uh, hello to all your listeners, and um, thanks. 
We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams, music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.